Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View. This week, we're going to be talking about candida. And I'm super excited because, Sarah, I know that you're going to approach this to bust some myths and to also Mm -hmm. give some facts and science. Um, My favorite kind of show is when you get fired up because there are people on the internet telling other people to do things that's not based in science. And I have a feeling there might be a little bit of that coming. (laughs) So no, not just a little bit. So much of it. So much of it. Okay. This is a total spoiler for all of the content we're about to go through, but like I feel like I've had to answer questions about various candida cleanses in its relationship to the AIP like several thousand times over the last few years. And I've always had sort of this um, at least surface understanding of what's eliminated on a candida cleanse, and I've really seen it as being incompatible with the autoimmune protocol because they're then eliminating so many different things that you can't get the food variety in order to get nutrient sufficiency. But as I dug into the literature on this to see like, what's the, you know, most of these types of things have at least a, a kernel of truth behind the facets, right? Like they don't get to be this popular when they're based on no science, except apparently for candida cleanses because it's, it's almost, I mean, we'll get into it, but it's, it's almost the opposite thing. Like if you actually look at the scientific papers that have been done, the strategy is almost, almost like completely the reverse of what would even make sense. And even that is still not the right approach. It's, but it's, we're going to have fun. We're going to have fun is what's going to happen. There's, there's lots of, there's lots of cool deep dive coming. I am here for it. But before we jump in, I do want to acknowledge and thank our sponsor this week. If you have listened to this podcast at all before, you know that we love Just Thrive Probiotic. Mm-hmm. I use this product every single day. Um, and I have mentioned before how I notice that my sugar cravings go down when I am consistent with taking this. I admittedly am not the best at taking my supplements every single day. Sarah, you're such a model, like little student. You take yours. When you've stayed at my house before, you have like this whole thing, this whole setup. And I'm like, I'm in awe of your preparedness. Um, I am a hundred percent compliant with my supplement regime that is prescribed by my doctor. Such a good girl. Um, Yeah. Is that the firstborn child in me? I don't know what that is. I'm a firstborn child and I'm a rebel. All right. That's not the explanation. Something else. Well, whatever it is, I will say it is worthwhile to remember to take your just drive probiotic because I genuinely feel a difference. Um, And I do, I have created some routines that help me take it regularly, but I am not a good steward as you. Um, So for our listeners, you're going to hear why this is our sponsor this week as Sarah gets into the science. Um, It should not be, oh, I said it. I tried so hard to avoid it. Um, (laughs) It won't be a surprise as you've heard us talk about gut health and um, sugars and what candida is and and all that kind of stuff as I know Sarah is going to get into. Um, But if you are looking for a genuine, scientifically proven 
one way to support your gut health, you can get 15% off Just Thrive probiotics with the code THEWHOLEVIEW at checkout. And that's at justthrivehealth.com forward slash thewholeview. I do want to mention we've talked about this a ton before, um, including shows 346, 417, 445, and 457. I will say the best thing about this Just Thrive link and code is that, I mean, we've told you the science. We're going to go into the science. There's there's no doubt in my mind that this is... Um, amazing and it works, um, scientifically proven, uh, but also that this code is able to be stacked to their subscription. So it does encourage me to continue to take it all the time because like when a new bottle arrives and I haven't finished the last one, um, I'm like, oh yeah, I need to get on that. Um, So I love that you can kind of double stack and it ends up being kind of a buy two, get one free deal. Um, And I'm I'm a deal seeker. That's my thing. Um, so don't forget that you can do that. And um, Sarah, are you ready to jump into the science on why we love Just Thrive and it's a good fit for this show? <laughs> uh, absolutely. I I think, um, you know, the, the quick take home message that, uh, again, like another spoiler for all of the great content we're about to go into, um, is that candida overgrowth is uh, permitted by a lack of probiotic species. It is something that we see after like courses of antibiotics. And so that's one of the reasons why supporting a healthy microbiome in general, which is our, the gut microbiome seeds our microbiomes elsewhere in our bodies. Um, and so supporting a healthy gut microbiome is really, really critical to this. And one of the things that's, I think, so important to know about the Just Thrive probiotic is that the strains that they contain are what are called soil-based organisms. They're species from the genus Bacillus, and they're all super well studied, and they've been studied together and shown to, for example, like improve intestinal um, integ- barrier integrity, so like reverse leaky gut. Um, they're all species that are known to be um, what are called keystone species in the gut. So they're species that create an environment where the really beneficial probiotics that are more sensitive, like lactobacillus or bifidobacterium, then are happier to grow. So we can't really get those species that we're getting, say, from fermented foods to grow as easily without creating this environment. And bacillus are the type of bacteria that create that environment. So they're a sort of a a necessary prerequisite for a healthy gut. And there have been studies looking at some of the species in Just Thrive Probiotics showing that just taking that bacillus increases the growth of lactobacillus. And that's going to become really relevant as we get into the science on candida. Um, I want to shout out to Olivia from Patreon for asking this question over there. Um, and really, um, you know, just being like super excited about listening to our answer, which is uh, why we're doing this whole show on candida. So shout out to Olivia. Uh, and I'll read her question. So Olivia wrote, I got diagnosed with candida and my integrative doctor said to cut out honey or maple syrup for two months, knowing those are what I typically use as a sweetener. When I look up the candida cleanse diet online, apparently fruits high in sugar and caffeinated drinks would be off the table also, not that my doctor recommended that to me though. I know Dr. Sarah would say that our body needs the nutrients and fruits too for various reasons and blackstrap molasses is a superfood. 
I am aware that even for healthy individuals, sweeteners should only be consumed in moderation. However, for a Sjogren's syndrome warrior now, also diagnosed with candida, should I cut out maple syrup, honey, molasses, and fruits high in sugar, even in moderation? Is AIP okay with candida? Are there any drawbacks of starving the candida with a cleanse to reset my microbiome before resuming the recommended AIP lifestyle? Alas, life of an autoimmune disease warrior. Olivia's so educated. Look at her. I'm doing like the like the silent clap. You can't I mean, maybe I could be loud and you would hear it, but that would be obnoxious. So. <laughs> um, I can I can say Olivia was in my last session of the AIP lecture series. So she comes from a very solid science background on all of these things. Um, and I love this question because it really it helps us um, launch into sort of candida cleanses in general, but it also asks about each of the individual pieces that are so important. Absolutely. I think one of the things that would be helpful before we kind of jump into answering all those very specific questions, because Olivia comes from that knowledge base, is maybe to kind of back up a little bit and what is candida? Why would this doctor be recommending the removal of just those things for her? Mm -hmm. um, kind of walk us through it a little bit. For sure. Uh, so here's a word that I'm going to try to pronounce correctly. Um, when uh, so when Candida albicans, which is the very specific species of yeast, overgrows, it is a situation called candidiasis, which basically means too much candida. And it's important to understand a couple of things. So first, Candida albicans is a normal member of a healthy gut microbiota. It's typically asymptomatic. It's typically found in the gastrointestinal tract, in the reproductive tract, in the oral cavity, on the skin of most people. It is a normal, uh, normal yeast to be around. Um, and so generally, it's, it can be there and cause no problems. But there are certain situations that allow candida to grow too much and, and basically kind of like take over, overgrow. And that is what causes candidiasis. That is, or that is the situation that is candidiasis. So things that make that happen, um, the most common is antibiotic courses. Um, so that basically antibiotics, as we've talked about on the show recently in episode 460, basically wipes out our probiotics and our community of microorganisms in our gut is really important because uh, all of those different species interact to keep the growth of each other in check. So when we lose all of our important probiotic species, that creates basically a, a, a niche for something like candida to, to fill. And so there's actually studies that show that in general, bacteria in our guts outnumber yeast by about a thousand times, like three orders of magnitude, three zeros. Um, and then what happens when we take antibiotics is that completely flips and the yeast population will increase about 40 fold. Um, that's typically, you know, if you need antibiotics, as again, we just talked about this in episode 460, um, please go listen to that episode because I'm sort of assuming that that base knowledge with a lot of the stuff we're talking about today. Um, in, a, in a normal short course of antibiotics, um, it takes about eight weeks for that balance between bacteria and, and yeast in the gut to, to return to normal. And normally that would happen without, without doing too much. But we also talked about in episode 460 was taking probiotics to help maintain gut microbiome architecture through the course of, of probiotics and then, and restore as quickly as possible on the other side. 
So antibiotics is like the dominant like cause of uh, candida infections. The other next sort of dominant cause would be things that are suppressing immune function. So most typically this would be a course of steroids, but there's also some studies showing that um, other things that suppress immune function can be um, a, like a possible contributor here. So for example, people with diabetes, which is a disease associated with systemic inflammation. Uh, so systemic inflammation often means that part of the immune system is on overdrive, but the part that helps fight an infection is also underactive at the same time. So that is something that can predispose people to candida infections. Uh, chronic stress can increase risk. So um, there have been studies that um, study women with recurrent vaginal yeast infections, which is very typically caused by candida, although it also can be caused by bacteria. It's important to know there's there's more than one infectious organism that can be um, behind that. And those studies have shown that elevated morning salivary cortisol, which is a indicator of, of chronic stress, is a very, very strong risk factor for recurrent vaginal yeast infections. Um, and then the other the other sort of main driver of like creating creating a situation where candida has the opportunity to overgrow, it can be basically variations in the local environment. And this is typically driven by nutrition. And so this is, this is where diet comes into play. So what's really interesting is, again, these are typically studies done in women with recurrent yeast infections. Vitamin D insufficiency and low sun exposure separately increase risk, which is fascinating to me. Uh, B-complex vitamins have been implicated. Uh, zinc insufficiency has a, is a very strong predictor of vaginal yeast infections. And um, studies have looked at um, dietary factors that are changing the pH. So uh, when the pH becomes less acidic, that's where yeast really like to thrive. Most of our probiotic bacteria do better in a more acidic environment. Um, and studies have actually shown that increased dietary fat, especially total dietary fat and saturated fat and monounsaturated fat, increased vaginal pH, um, which then it makes the, the, that environment more alkaline, um, which then increases the risk of, of infections. Um, and then the last sort of predisposing factor here that can sort of be permissive for wait, candidiasis. Wait, I want to back up because yeah. that is okay. different than what I understood. So mm -hmm. just we're gonna know. we're gonna talk about it multiple times. Okay, full disclosure: before changing my lifestyle about a decade ago, I had chronic yeast infections. Eleven months out of twelve. I mean, like almost uh, almost that's more than I did. I I mean, I did as well. I was I would say I got three a year. Yeah, maybe that's maybe it's 10 out of 12. I mean, honestly, very, very frequently to the point where I had a recurring prescription for Diflucan, which mm -hmm. would get rid of it quickly for me. The problem yep. was, of course, I was never re-inoculating myself with good bacteria. And therefore, it was just a cycle. And it was mm -hmm. um, it was also a hormonal cycle for me. Like it it always um, came the same time around every yep. month. So mm -hmm. um what I found fascinating is that I would have assumed, and you know what assuming does, right? That do. an increase in carbohydrate, because it's the fear of 
sugar and carbohydrate being sugar would have given the result of a higher infection rate. But I mm-hmm. I heard you just say that, that it's increased the fat because carbs. I was waiting for you to say decreased and you said increased. And I was like, wait mm-hmm. a minute, back up. I yep. just want to make sure that we like really... I would call that out because I think it's at the crux of um, Olivia's question, but also that is not what the general population thinks that they know. Correct. And that's a biggie. So I'm just, yes. I'm, 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 my brain is exploding <laughs> and I just want to make sure we all heard that properly. <laughs> uh, no, I appreciate it. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to reference these studies um, multiple times because um, the studies that have tried to look at um, dietary links with risk of vaginal yeast infections have shown like exactly what you would think if you think about this in terms of the gut microbiome and the immune system, right? So um, they show that things like uh, high refined carbohydrates and high fat, which are things that tend to feed gut dysbiosis, are things that um, increase risk of vaginal yeast infections and the insufficiency or deficiency in really important immune health nutrients. And uh, our gut bacteria are also really sensitive to the nutrient density of our diet, especially vitamins A and D and minerals, because that's something they can't make. They can, they're pretty good at making vitamin K, most of the B vitamins. They can't make minerals because um, alchemy is not a thing. <laughs> and, um, and so they really thrive when we're eating a nutrient-dense diet, and what happens when we're deficient in any of these nutrients is certain species that are typically, it's the most important species that are also the most sensitive to our diet and to the environment um, are the ones that can die off first. So that's a thing that is creating this opportunity for candida to overgrow. And we know that most of these things go together, right? So uh, deficiency in these immune health nutrients increases risk of infection. Stress increases risk of infection. Stress also causes gut dysbiosis. So all of these things are actually really a perfect storm. And that the last thing that uh, you alluded to, Stacy, was estrogen. So our gut bacteria are also sensitive to our hormone environment. And even in women, our, our gut microbiome composition will cycle with our monthly cycles. Um, and that's because they're they're quite sensitive to cortisol, but also estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. And so it is also well documented that high estrogen levels are a risk factor, which is why some women with recurring yeast infections get them uh, at a predictable time in the cycle when estrogen is is spiking. Um, but it's also why women who are pregnant or who are taking hormones, typically hormonal contraceptives, are also at higher risk. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, I'm, I mean, I was all in before, but now I'm all ears. I'm ready. All right. Um, So I've sort of alluded to vaginal yeast infections as sort of the the dominant disease that is caused by candida albicans infection. Um, But I think it's important to actually kind of separate that out and and talk about all of the different ways that candida uh, overgrowth can manifest in order to bust some really important myths, because I think candida has become this like scapegoat for everything that's wrong with society from a health perspective. And there's really no science to back up most of that. So vaginal yeast infections is like clearly one of the biggest things that we see that is driven by candida. Not all uh, vaginosis is caused by candida. It can also be bacterial. So that's also something to to be aware of. But uh, vaginal yeast infections will affect about 75% of women at least once in their lifetime. Uh, the other main infection that is caused by candida is uh, an oral infection called thrush, and this is very common in babies. Uh, I've had personal experience with this because uh, Adele had thrush several times. We had about three months when she was little where we were just passing it back and forth, and it wasn't until we were sort of both on diflucan for an extended period of time that we were actually able to get rid of it. Um, and then a little can bit I, more unusually. Yeah. Can I just say in both of those cases, it can also be um, like bacteria on a item that's not properly cleaned. So, you know, bringing my like LC hat um, mm-hmm. on, oftentimes people get thrush not from candida, but because like a, a pumping device is not properly washed, a bottle isn't washed, so baby gets it from that and then gives it to mom, kind of passing back and forth. And likewise, the vaginosis, um, again, giving way TMI, somehow I have no problem talking about this, but you say the word poop and I flush. Um, <laughs> I did give myself, if we're calling it vaginosis, that seems like the scientific word that you're using, um, from thinking that my uh, menstrual cup had been sterilized because we have a sterilizer um, that we use for it but it hadn't been and so I just ran it under water before use but that's obviously not enough to kill the bacteria and ended up getting an infection that way once in the last 10 years so um, I know we're talking about candida and um, but I do want to say like let's let's just say you have an infection um it's also important to think about like where it might have come from and not jump into self-diagnosing for candida because I see that quite often and I know we're going to jump into that on the internet. But while we're talking about how it's diagnosed, like one would not just get a case of vaginosis or thrush and then jump to, okay, I have candida and now I must do all of these, you know, protocols and medications and blah, 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 because I see a lot of people do that. And in, in my case, I, can point to knowing many, many people in the lactation world and all this kind of stuff who it had nothing to do with that, right? It was, you know, a a bottle that didn't get washed properly. And it's actually really important to understand because things that can help treat 
candida are kind of the opposite of how you would treat a bacteria. Um, and so, um, and even, so you can also get uh, dermal infections that are candida driven, like diaper rash is the, the most uh, sort of classic candida skin infection, but there's also something called cutane, cutaneous candidiasis, um, which most often occurs in uh, the, the moist bits like uh, armpits or groins um, or uh, the you know folds under breasts, for example. Um, and that is often misdiagnosed as eczema. And eczema, which is typically treated with steroids, actually increases the growth of yeast like candida. So um, it's really important to get these things properly diagnosed. A proper diagnosis typically inc includes uh, a scraping of the infected tissues to be able to look at it under the microscope and see what's growing there. So it's, it's really important because it actually impacts the treatment. And one of the things that is, I think, really problematic, it's not just the self-diagnosis, although that's pretty rampant of, um, you know, relying on Dr. Google and putting in all the symptoms. And then we get like a hundred articles on candida cleanses and it's just, you know, the low, low price of two forty nine for whatever the, you know, program online is like, it's, it, it really is, a a big, um, a, a big target of online marketing. Um, but it's also something that's found its way into alternative medicine that candida is often not always, obviously there's some great practitioners out there, but there are practitioners that will, will diagnose it based on a, like a symptom questionnaire. And that should never be the case. There should always be a medical test to confirm that it is candida. Um, candida, most of the time are these sort of like highly treatable, um, uh, infections. There is a very sort of rare, a thing called invasive candidiasis that occurs predominantly in hospitalized patients uh, where the candida actually gets into the bloodstream and can infect internal organs. And that is a very dangerous situation that is typically diagnosed, again, with a blood sample where they're culturing the blood to see if they can get the candida to grow, but it has a very high mortality rate. It's very, very rare, but that is a thing to be aware of. Um, and there is some research. It's still... Uh, the cause and effect has not been established, but there's some research showing that candida may be important in the, um, not necessarily in the pathogenesis of inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's disease, but in potentially um, driving, like persisting or even driving like a flare of, of Crohn's disease. So again, like the, the cause and effect isn't super understood. It seems to make disease activity increase, but whether or not it's important in the actual development of Crohn's disease um, sort of remains to be elucidated, as scientists love to say. Um, but definitely, you know, it seems to be something that that's at least worsening disease. Um, and there are some associations with higher candida levels and other gastrointestinal conditions. But again, you know, it's it, at that point, it's just a marker of gut dysbiosis rather than necessarily the culprit. Again, there's sort of like no cause and effect that has been established. So um, generally when we're talking about candida, we're really just talking about skin infections, um, vaginal yeast infections, and thrush.
I appreciate the clarification on all that because I do think that the majority of us, I'll say, because it took me a while to get educated on it, do kind of lump it all together. And I think knowing especially how different the treatment is and how thinking that you're treating one can actually make the other worse, right? Like all that is very important. So um, I guess maybe we're at a place where we can jump into self treatment like what what are some people doing from a from a cleanse perspective or um what are we seeing there um yeah so i think you know again it's it's um it's really important to emphasize that uh it's important to get a proper diagnosis if you expect that it's candida um because again that impacts treatment And I think it's also really important to emphasize that there's no research to support that candida is the root cause of um, things that it's, it's typically, again, sort of scapegoated for online, like fatigue or insomnia or autoimmune disease or food cravings or acne. Um, There was even a study that was done a few years ago where they took women with recurrent vaginal yeast infections, but who also had other symptoms like brain fog and allergies and digestive issues. And they gave half of them antifungal drugs and half of them sugar pills. And they basically showed that even though the antifungal drugs were really good at actually controlling the the yeast growth and the local symptoms of that, um, the difference in terms of the other sort of systemic symptoms were the same as the placebo. So um, it's been pretty well shown that candida is not a uh, a root cause infection. And like we've talked about on the show before, sometimes these things are basically, it might not be the candida itself, but the fact that candida is potentially a um, symptom of gut dysbiosis rather than the cause of all of the other symptoms, right? Like the gut dysbiosis is actually the thing that that's driving it. Um, but the most common thing I think nowadays that people are, are tackling when they suspect candida or a healthcare provider suggests they have candida is to do what is called like a candida cleanse, candida diet, detoxes, all of these words that Stacey, I know you and I agree upon are terrible, terrible words. Yeah, I mean, we went and talked about this years and years ago. I went back and looked. It's on episode 269. We talked about what is a real detox and kind of walked through that. And, you know, what I'll say is that detoxification or toxin or chemicals and cleanses, these are all words that don't have, you know, a rooted, regulated definition. And so people are out there throwing them around and giving suggestions for things that not only will they not maybe help, but they could harm your health. And we talked about some of those in that show. And one of the things that I think is especially important when you're talking about it from the perspective of candida is anytime you're talking about intentionally changing your gut microbiome, 
you are affecting many other things in your body and your health, which, you know, if, if you went and Googled how many times we talked about the gut microbiome on this show, it would be like an infinite search result because <laughs> it affects everything. And yeah. so if you are doing something that is going to harm that gut health um, makeup, then you're actually harming so many other things in your health as well. That's not to say that we don't want you to work on like how great you could feel if your little pets in your gut are happy, right? That's what we're here for. That's what we talk about all the time. But I think the thing that concerns both of us is how easily and quickly, because it's a SEO, that is a search engine optimization term um, that produces good Google results is when you put in the word detox or cleanse because people mm -hmm. are looking for those and therefore people are going to put it in their website or, you know, wherever in order to get people interested. And, you know, we explained in detail what detoxification actually means and how your body does a really great job of detoxifying on its own. And when you support things like your liver or, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I have a blog post, I think it's like eight different things that you can do to actually detoxify your body. Things like exercising to get sweat out, um, you know, drinking more water. These are things that like actually help your body detoxify because they support your body's natural detoxification process. So if you see something on the internet that's talking about a cleanse or a detoxification or something like that, ask yourself, what is the mechanism that this person is referencing that is doing the action they're claiming? Because yeah. if it is just a juice cleanse, or whatever. What is what is the action that's happening there? Yes, it's an increase in fluids. Okay, that could help flush some stuff. But really what they're talking about is like making you poop a lot is not actually going to solve the health concerns that you might have related to something like candida or many, 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 many other things people are trying to sell you on to detoxify and cleanse you. I'm doing jazz hands over here as you talk <laughs> <laughs> because I just like a hundred percent agree. Um, I mean, no surprise that I a hundred percent agree. Um, and I think that, um, I think that with candida cleanses, what's really interesting to me about, I mean, cleanses and detoxes in general is there's often like the thing that you can point to of like, yeah, well, that's why people feel better when they do this. Um, you know, if it's a juice cleanse, you know, you're generally talking about, uh, you know, the people who, who are interested in doing this are people who aren't eating a ton of vegetables and fruits to begin with. And even though they'd be much better off with a whole foods diet that was very plant forward, um, they're probably still dramatically increasing their vitamin and mineral intake and their phytonutrient intake through these juices, even though there's something that they could do that would be still you know, 7,000 steps better than that. And that's the same with candida cleanses that you can sort of point to, you know, the, so the most common advice in a candida cleanse is to limit sugar and sometimes like all carbohydrates. Often that includes fruit and starchy vegetables, um, to avoid yeast and fungus containing foods. So for most people, that would be things like breads and then to increase intake of probiotics. And what 
functionally happens when somebody, you know, takes those, those, whether they're doing a, a really, you know, detailed one that has all the food lists of yes and no, or they're doing a more general, like, okay, I've just got told to avoid these few things. They tend to eat more vegetables. They tend to eat more whole foods. They tend not to eat refined grain products and they're increasing probiotics. So they're, they just did some of the major like checks on a health promoting diet of eating more whole foods, probably eating more vegetables, getting in more probiotics, and then avoiding the sort of nutrient depleted, refined and manufactured foods. So you can already point to like why, I mean, and it's, it's, that is exactly why the candida cleanse has been around. I think I, I first met somebody who was on one, oh, maybe about 10 years ago and, um, and I remember having this whole conversation about, um, mustard, <laughs> like it was at a potluck and because she was on a candida cleanse and she couldn't eat mustard and it was because it might have yeast in it. I, I still, I guess, cause vinegar is an ingredient, even though vinegar is a bacteria base. Anyways, it was, um, confusing to me at the time because it still didn't make sense. And now I can sort of see, you know, both the, both the things that are being eliminated that really don't need to be eliminated. But also when you are following these types of, of rules that, that does, there is this like side effect of overall improving the quality of the diet for a lot of people. But for our listeners who are already probably eating really healthy foods, the things that our listeners are cutting out, if they're told to to do a candida cleanse, are some of the most beneficial foods to keep in. So I think we should get into that. I'm assuming you're not going to take people's fruit away, but let's get into it. <laughs> um, you're right. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I mean, so let, let's start with just this like low carb diet for candida, low sugar diet. There's like no science to support the idea of eliminating fruits and starchy vegetables. There was a like really well done study back in 1999 where uh, researchers took people, uh, just healthy people. And what they did was they just looked at how many carbs they ate and how much candida they had. And they, they took samples from a few different spots. So that's all the detail we need to get into. And uh, then they put people on a high sugar diet and measured how that changed the candida growth. So first thing, there was zero correlation between carb intake and candida growth to begin with. And then when they put people on the high sugar diet, the only people who had increased counts of candida, they had it uh, in their mouth and in their feces. And it was a very small percentage of the people were the people who had really high levels to begin with. Um, and what they showed overall, like when you, when you looked at the whole population was that, um, the, the limiting sugar was not going to change candida. Like it was, um, you know, basically they showed a very limited influence of these high sugar diets on candida growth because it really only happened in a handful of, of the, the study participants. And overall, they weren't able to show a strong statistical link between carbohydrate intake or sugar intake and candida growth. So, um, so that's like one study that really tackled this question directly. There was an older 1984 study. Wait, wait, wait. before we move on, 
mm-hmm. have, I have a pun that I've prepared for you. Mm. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm waiting. So this gives new meaning to the idea of partying like it's 1999. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well done. I appreciate you're, it. You're welcome for that one. It's so good. Um, do you and have a 1984? I was going to say, isn't 1984 like the... Um... Isn't it the Orson Welles? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. I don't, uh, but I'll, I'll think about it. Okay. So, uh, again, these, this is <laughs> when we have to draw on studies done in the eighties and nineties in order to be like the closest studies to evaluate something like there, there it's because there's nothing there. Um, a 1984 study looked at women with, um, recurrent yeast infection and they had them cut down dairy products, table sugar, and artificial sweeteners and showed that there was a reduction in the severity of vaginal yeast infections when they did that. But these people did not eliminate all sugar. They didn't eliminate fruit. They didn't eliminate um, starchy carbohydrates. Um, and so these, these are the, the older studies that were like, that's the evidence for cutting out carbs and sugar. And I guess the fact that that people with diabetes are more prone to yeast infections. Yeast are not growing in the bloodstream where the the high blood sugar is. So it it still really doesn't make any sense that that's somehow feeding these these yeast. And then a 2009 study that was probably one of the, the, again, I've already talked about this, was the more rigorous, you know, looking at all these different dietary factors and looking at how they correlate with um, with uh, vaginosis basically showed that it was a high fat diet that was the problem, um, and it was basically they they had um, people were the the participants who were consuming it was like close to forty percent of their calories from fat were at high risk, and they also showed that there was an association between folate, vitamin E, and calcium intake. So when that those nutrient intakes were low, the severity of vaginosis infections were higher. Um, and so, you know, again, it's, it makes a very little sense when you think about the immune system, when you think about the microbiome, um, that starving candida by eliminating the foods that are most important for growing our good bacteria when it is the lack of good bacteria that is creating the environment for this yeast to grow. Like it makes no sense that that would be a thing. Like maybe, yeah, I mean, there's certainly at least some preliminary evidence that eliminating high sugar intake and high artificial sweetener intake would be beneficial. But of course we know artificial sweeteners feed gut dysbiosis, right? And so does high sugar intake. So it makes all the sense in the world to take a more proactive approach to supporting a healthy microbiome than it does to be making choices to somehow like starve this, this yeast that is, that is overgrowing. I never really understood the whole anti-yeast thing either. I think you've mentioned this a couple of times, but um, for me personally, like I've looked into certain kinds of yeast and where they grow on as it relates to mm-hmm. how my body will react to it. But what do people think that consuming yeast is doing 
inside their body. Like, help me understand. Like you said, it's not in their blood, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying this to be like mocking. I really genuinely don't understand. Like, does someone think that if they're consuming yeast, that it's going to then create something inside their body that's going to have it grow on the outside? Like, what? What? Mm-hmm. Okay, help me understand. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think it's conflating. Um, basically, basic. It's basically assuming that all yeast are bad, which is uh, an erroneous assumption. Um, we have some really important probiotic yeast that are essential for a healthy microbiome, both in our gut and other areas of the body. And I think that this idea of el- eliminating foods that contain yeast, like breads, alcohols, um, sometimes also mushrooms, like uh, because they're a fungus and yeast is a fungus, are wrapped into this as well. Um, that there's this idea that uh, somehow like all yeast are friends. And so if you eat the candida friends, then they're going to have a party together, something like that. It's some kind of conflation of, of uh, yeast as being some kind of monolith. And the opposite is actually true. So we've talked about on the show about the importance of Saccharomyces boulardii, which is this incredibly important probiotic yeast that is found in a lot of fermented foods, especially like kombucha and kefir. And it has been well shown to inhibit candida growth. It is one of the best things we can do to inhibit candida. Um, and it's it's actually like, it's very well understood that um, it's even important to consume if we reduce candida growth in the digestive tracts, there's evidence that the digestive tract uh, microbiome is translocating to the vagina. So there is some a very close amount of crosstalk between those two areas of the body and uh, inhibiting the growth of candida in the digestive tract by consuming more natural food sources of Saccharomyces boulardii can actually uh, inhibit vaginal yeast infections so like ironic and interesting to me because I've talked to so many people who eliminate um like kefir or um gosh why can't kombucha different kinds of things like that because they have sugars in them because the it's feeding off of the sugars in order for the healthy um probiotics to grow Mm -hmm. and it's like I I'm it's like I'm talking to them. I'm like, but, but, but that's what's going to eat it in your gut. Like they're they're going to eat yep. the bad stuff. <laughs> like, isn't that what you want? So um, it's a hundred percent what example. you want. Yes. Um. Yeah. And actually, I mean, yes. Like sugar is added to uh, tea for kombucha or water for water kefir, or it's the natural sugars in dairy products for dairy kefir. That is what those organisms and like they're. Kefir and kombucha typically have like 40-ish different organisms, and it's a mix of beneficial yeast and bacteria. There's like some acetobacter in that that mix as well. So both the kombucha scoby as well as the kefir grains are actually these little communities in themselves of multiple different organisms, but Saccharomyces boulardii is one of the most important in that mix. And um, and so they ferment sugars. That's That's what they like to eat. And they are also producing, it's it's not just that you're getting those healthy um, probiotics. We know that 
consuming probiotics with the their natural foods. So that happens anytime you eat a fermented food increases their survival through the GI tract. So that's one good reason for kombucha or kefir. Um, but also they're part of the flavor of those fermented foods, that kind of sourness is from the production of short chain fatty acids as part of the fermentation. So there's this whole other, they're called sometimes postbiotics. There's this whole other beneficial class of, of molecules in those fermented foods that are also super helpful. So um, yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to, to avoid them for the high, the high sugar intake, especially cause the sugar isn't even that much in, in like a kombucha and you can always make the sugar even lower by making it at home and fermenting it, you know, 10 days instead of seven. Um, so yeah, so I definitely agree. <laughs> kombucha and kefir are awesome, but also so is like brewers and bakers yeast. So that's a different Saccharomyces called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and uh, which I will only pronounce that one time and refer to it as, as baker's yeast from now on. Um, so it's generally considered sort of like a neutral member of the gut microbiome, but it has also been shown to be able to inhibit candida growth. Um, and there was even a study, um, it was in a mouse model, but what they, they, it was a mouse model of vaginal infections, which I'm going to say, don't think about that too hard. Um, and what they did was they actually like gave them like a single dose of baker's yeast and found that just, just one administration helped clear the candida, which is kind of amazing. So you can kind of see that, um, that these, these yeast are sort of not like, Potentially, if, if you're looking at um, white bread, for example, as a source of baker's yeast, like that's a refined carbohydrate. It's going to uh, lower the, the quality of the diet for most people, which is going to magnify, uh, you know, insufficiencies of important nutrients. It's not a very good food for the gut microbiome because it doesn't have any fiber in it. But to blame that on the, the baker's yeast is like the wrong thing to blame, right? Like you can really see that the important thing here is to focus on fermented foods on things that are great for the gut microbiome, which brings me to mushrooms because mushrooms are fantastic for the gut microbiome. We've talked about this on the show before. We've had two whole shows just about mushrooms and um, they contain some really important things. So they contain some really unique polyphenols and triterpenes, which are, antioxidant phytonutrients with strong anti-cancer properties, with strong um, immune modulating properties. They contain fiber types that are completely unique in the food supply. And they also contain things like um, a really important amino acid, amino acid called ergothionine, um, which has been also like called the longevity vitamin because it triggers all of these, like such an important antioxidant, it triggers all these anti-aging pathways within our cells. Mushrooms have that, almost no other foods have that. And um, mushrooms have actually been shown to, probably thanks to the phytonutrients, to have strong antifungal properties, including there's at least 30 different species of edible mushrooms that have been shown to inhibit the growth of candida albicans. Um, and some of them, like reishi, is, um, reishi extract is so toxic to candida, it can disrupt the candida biofilms and even modulate the immune system so the immune system is better at fighting candida. So we're actually, by eliminating mushrooms because they're a fungus, similar to 
eliminating uh, something like kombucha kefir, we're actually eliminating a food that's probably one of our best sort of natural resources for fighting that candida infection and preventing the next one. I love this idea. I'm wondering if um, these tests are based off of like whole food sources or if we could expect to get the same benefit off of all of the reishi, reishi, right? That's I'm saying it right. Reishi. Yes. That's how I say it. Okay. Extracts and stuff. You know what I mean? You, like if we're taking out the fiber, if we're doing all that kind of stuff, are we still getting the benefit or do we just need to make a giant bowl of mushroom soup to have and eat every single day for a week, which if you tell me that's what I need to do, I'm like all in because you know how I feel about soup. So I'm going to (laughs) say the answer is both. So um, most of these studies are done using extracts. Um, And what it is, it's because so the, it's the combination of fiber and phytonutrients in mushrooms that are so beneficial for the gut microbiome. So part of eating more mushrooms is supporting healthy probiotic species in our gut. And that's one mechanism. And then the other mechanism is direct antifungal activity from the phytonutrients. And the phytonutrients are concentrated in the extracts. So if extracts are the easy thing for you, that's an awesome way to go. And if whole mushrooms are the easy thing for you, that's an even better way to go because then you're getting everything. But there's certain mushrooms that like you would never eat reishi. I don't think it's so ridiculously bitter. Like you would only ever do an extract of that. So some of the, the easy to come by mushrooms that have been shown to be really good at inhibiting candida are shiitake, oyster, um, chanterelle, but also like the common button mushroom, right? Regular old white mushrooms. So um, I would say, however you like your mushrooms, it's a good way to go. We're a like mushrooms and everything family, and one of our children does not like mushrooms. <laughs> and the poor guy, like it's not one of those things you can just put on the side. I mean, we do have, for example, like burgers or whatever. We'll put mushrooms on the side, but we just make a lot of things with mushrooms because they have so much umami and flavor. And mm-hmm. we're restricted with not doing nightshades and how other people might use tomatoes to infuse flavor in almost everything like chilies and peppers and tomatoes are so common in American and other foods to impart that kind of umami and flavor that our family has kind of taken to doing that with mushrooms and onions and garlic right like those are our flavors Mm -hmm. that we're adding in and that that poor kid, every time he eats, he's like picking out these tiny pieces of mushrooms <laughs> from whatever it is. Because we're just like, listen, you get you got to get them bored. OK, we're not going to we're not going to not eat these foods. I got my kids to like mushrooms by adding by re- chopping them super small and adding them to things that like could not be picked out. But you couldn't even see them because I think they both it was a textural issue and then like slowly over the last couple of years, the pieces got bigger, the places I put it got more frequent. And then finally we're at a place where um, they'll, one of them actually likes just straight sauteed mushrooms. The other one's still not a fan, but we'll eat them. Um, so I also think that that mushrooms are a, a food that you can build a preference for over time with familiarity, with pairing with other flavors, like all the same tricks that psychology studies show us are important for liking foods I I just feel like my kids are not picky at all and like each of them has one thing that they don't like and unfortunately it's not the same thing so just (laughs) so you can't just avoid it right sometimes it's 
you're just going to have to deal. And I also, I want to respect that, like, I have foods that aren't my favorite either. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like it doesn't necessarily mean at this late stage in the game where they are so open to eating so many things. Like if they say, I don't like this one thing, that's okay. Like that, that autonomy that they have about their own food choices is theirs to have, but it's not going to affect me. <laughs> I'm still going <laughs> to make all the mushrooms. Oh, okay. That said, I think maybe we could talk about what does help, right? So we talked about mushrooms being something that does help. Oh, I also wanted to mention, um, also because last week we talked about oats, or maybe it was the week before we talked about oats as being something that it was a previous time that I can't, I can't, <sighs> it was a time warp. Anymore. I know, I don't even understand where we are anymore either. Um, I updated my lactation cookie recipe because um, my sister had a baby. Did I tell you my sister? My, you did, yeah. My baby sister had a baby. And I went to make her lactation cookies. And for those listeners who are like, what? Lactation cookies are just, are just cookies that are nutrient dense that you add a few things to that can help your milk supply. And so they're the cookies are really like oatmeal cowboy cookies but then if you are lactating like here add these few things but what was interesting is I went back to that original blog post which is a very popular blog post of ours like a decade ago because I was a lactation consultant and I made these like grain-free version of a lactation cookie and I was so negative about so many things that were really not a problem and could have helped people's milk supply. So I just want to like publicly apologize for my diet culture mindset back in the day um, and let you know that there is an updated lactation cookie recipe that now includes oats, which can help milk. And the reason I bring it up is because you are mentioning brewer's yeast, which is another thing that can help milk supply. And you can get it gluten-free. Um, I don't think that you mentioned this, Sarah, but I do want to specify that if you are someone who is avoiding gluten or is gluten sensitive, um, that some yeasts are grown on gluten. And mm-hmm. I like to add... Um, what's it called? Nutritional yeast to foods to make it taste cheesy. Sometimes it has like that flavor. Um, and I just make sure that I'm purchasing one that is grown off of beets. Um, and you can do the same kind of thing when you look into what the source is of like brewer's yeast or something like that. Um, so I just want to like call that out specifically if you are avoiding, um, as most people are, who are our listeners. And especially if you're on a candida cleanse or thinking of one, you're probably already avoiding gluten. So just be aware of that when you're looking at yeast. But um, I just thought it was interesting that we just talked about oats and now we're talking about brewer's yeast. And I was looking back at that blog post, which was like, you know, oh gosh, it was it was painful for me to like read my own words on that and to be yeah. like hyperbolizing the negativity of so many things and like facepalm, like, okay, here's a cookie recipe. Just relax. <laughs> relax, mama, <laughs> eat some cookies. <laughs> I, I, um, I mean, I hear you on the sort of looking at old content as I'm sort of building a new website and uh, revisiting a lot of old content to update. There's a lot of things that I'm like, nah, I can't, you know, like the really old stuff, right. From like, nine, 10 years ago, I'm like, oh, wow, this is not supported by science from recent years. And it's going away. Um, that's how I'm dealing with it. And then also working hard to make sure that my resources are updated so that people can find the the good, accurate information, like doing this podcast. 
Um, so uh, that is the one part of Candida cleanses that is well justified. And probably one of the reasons why people feel good on them is that probiotics are typically endorsed. And there are a variety of studies that show there's certain strains that have been shown to be really good at um, both like reducing the, the ability of candida to even infect cells um, and the ability of candida to induce inflammation, which is part of what's driving the symptoms, but even like modulating the immune response and say increasing production of antibodies against candida. Um, they all fall under the lactobacillus genus. So the four that have been best studied in terms of um, bacteria, probiotic bacteria that are really good at inhibiting candida growth are lactobacillus acidophilus, lactobacillus rhamnosus, lactobacillus ruteri, and lactobacillus fermentum. And I said all of those confidently enough that even if I mispronounce them, no one will know. Um, so they, those are like the typical species that you would find in any kind of fermented food, they're typical in yogurt or milk kefir, or even you'll find some of those lactobacillus in sauerkraut um, in, and kombucha will have some lactobacillus, right? So lactobacillus are kind of the, the all-purpose um, fermenters. So even like fermented meats use lactobacillus, like they're, they're pretty easy to get exposed to in any kind of fermented food. Um, and they've been shown to um, really like strongly reduce the risk of yeast infections and antibiotic, especially related yeast infections. Studies have shown that taking lactobacillus-based probiotics during or after antibiotic use can help reduce the risk of antibiotic-related yeast infections. And studies have shown that it doesn't need to be a probiotic in a capsule, that um, fermented foods, yogurt is, has been well-studied can help to reduce candida growth. And it's also helpful here because we've mostly been focused on, on vaginal yeast infections, but these same strains are also helpful for bacterial vaginosis. So if it's a bacteria, this is still, like the probiotics is still a good way to go. There was a study done in 2009 that showed that supplementing with uh, lactobacillus species at the same time as taking an antifungal was even better than just taking the antifungal for vaginal yeast infections. And the other part of this is taking, um, eating a lot of fermented foods, taking a, a, a good probiotic aren't just about treatment. Like I think, you know, if you go, you know, go to the doctor, get an actual diagnosis for candida, which is going to involve scraping the infected tissue and looking at that under a microscope. And it's definitely not going to be based just on symptoms unless you have gone through that diagnosis before and you have a history of say vaginal yeast infections and you've recently been on antibiotics and steroids, like then a doctor is going to skip the scraping part because it's not very fun. But other than that, the, the actual proper diagnosis needs, needs to be performed. Um, and so, you know, there you're going to probably still want to treat with antifungals, but the probiotics is going to be really, really helpful as well as dietary changes to help support the gut microbiome. And then all of those things are still going to be helpful for preventing candida infections in the future. So as we talked about in episode 460, we talked about the role of probiotics in maintaining the architecture of the gut microbiome 
through a course of antibiotics and beyond and helping sort of restore a normal, healthy, diverse gut microbiome as quickly as possible on the other side. But studies have shown that there's basically colonization of the vaginal microbiome from the gut microbiome. And they've actually been able to show in studies that the growth of species, especially lactobacillus species, that there's agreement between those two areas. And it's basically because our microbiomes talk to each other. And, um, and they've basically been able to show that working on the gut microbiome is one of the best things we can do to help support a healthy vaginal microbiome, which is why there's more products now that are um, oral products for vaginal health rather than you know, vaginal suppositories. Like I would not recommend a yogurt suppository here. That is not, it's not going to be the thing consuming the probiotic foods. Definitely the better way to go. I am a- affected by what I am learning. Some people are doing to treat this. Um, <laughs> and I like your suggestion of just eating the yogurt instead. Um, the notes are really detailed y'all. I just, I'm going to just leave it there. Um, I think what I'll do is move us along to mm-hmm. this idea that <laughs> I'm like stumbling over my words, reading some of these notes. I'm so highly affected. Um, okay. It was the word suppository, wasn't it? It, it Also, um, there are many other words in the notes that are also uncomfortable. Yeah. So some anatomy. Got it. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. yep. Moving on. But really, it's all about why am I a child? Do you hear my voice cracking? This is so embarrassing. (laughs) I'm such a child. It's all about the microbiome is what I'm hearing. And that is why consuming the food is what's helping, obviously. Um, I think maybe, as we mentioned before, with conflation, you know, you see the candida on the outside of your body if you have a yeast infection, but really it's coming from... Um, a diagnosis of candida, which is inside your body. And so if we, obviously we need to treat things topically, but really to solve the problem, to get to the root of the problem is um, working to support a healthy gut microbiome, right? Like maybe we, we just remind people of that and move along from these embarrassing (laughs) moments that I've had. So I think this is the appropriate place to remind our listeners that neither of us are medical professionals. And as I think we've emphasized, this is really important to go get a proper diagnosis and talk to your healthcare provider. Um, Talking about supporting the microbiome is much more about prevention, not treatment. So with treatment, talk to your doctor. Um, Again, talk to your doctor about antifungals as well as probiotics, because those things together work really well. But your doctor is it, your, your doctor is the person who knows your health history and your situation and has the specific recommendations for you based on knowing you. Um, when we're talking about supporting the microbiome, this is much more about breaking that cycle for recurrent vaginal yeast infections as well as, I mean, supporting a healthy gut microbiome isn't, it's not just about, you know, keeping candida in check, right? It, it literally impacts every single aspect of our health. So there's no part of our health that is not impacted by the gut microbiome. So it's it's just kind of, I think, Stacey, you put it uh, in a recent podcast, the root of our health, and that is exactly what it is, right? It's, it's the basis of everything else that's going on in our bodies. So um, I will mention that I have 
a pair of ebooks, the Gut Health Guidebook and the Gut Health Cookbook, that are completely packed with science on the gut microbiome, what species are good, and what foods and lifestyle factors are super, super important. We've also talked about most of those aspects on recent shows, um, including, uh, I think we've done like 10 shows on vegetables, fruits, and mushrooms. Uh, we've talked about nuts and seeds. We've talked about extra virgin olive oil. We've talked about fish and shellfish. We've talked about nutrient density approximately a bajillion times. We've talked about fermented foods, sleep, activity, stress management. All of those are important. And I think this is a really good place to emphasize that the AIP is fantastic for the gut microbiome. It's completely compatible with supporting the gut microbiome. And that's one of the things that Olivia asked specifically was, is the AIP like a good idea if I've been diagnosed with candida? And so if you are following the AIP, most of the gut microbiome superfoods are the nutrient-dense foods that are the basis of the AIP. There's a few foods that are great for the gut microbiome that are initially eliminated. So if you're ready for reintros, those are great foods to focus on. We've talked again a lot about these on recent shows, like nuts and seeds and rice and oats and corn. Uh, most legumes, basically legumes other than soy and peanuts, are good for the gut microbiome. A2 dairy, especially fermented, is good for the gut microbiome. So all of those foods would be really great foods to work on methodical reintroductions with if you're following the AIP. But also if you're not ready for reintroductions, none of those are uniquely beneficial for the gut microbiome in the way that the different vegetable and fruit families are, in the way that mushrooms are, in the way that extra virgin olive oil is so good, or the way that fish and shellfish and the nutrients that are predominantly found in organ meat are really important. So all of those things that are already sort of wrapped in from a nutrient density perspective into the AIP are all things that are going to help support a healthy microbiome. And then the last piece of the puzzle is why a bacillus-based probiotic, like Just Thrive Probiotic, is a really good addition because these are species that we we used to be exposed to just like in dirt. Um, our modern lives are so hygienic and sterile that we're no longer exposed to bacillus-based probiotics as part of our normal life. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, they're so, so, so important. They're keystone species, which means they create an environment in the gut that is permissive for the growth of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. And bacillus subtilis, which is in Just Thrive Probiotic, especially has been shown to help stabilize the microbiome during infection and increase the growth of lactobacillus ruteri and lactobacillus acidophilus, which are two of the strains I just mentioned that are especially helpful for inhibiting candida growth. They've also been shown to help restore the gut microbiome faster after um, antibiotics. They also produce uh, enzymes that help improve digestion. They've been shown to be helpful for a variety of different gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, and uh, even like Bacillus indicus that's in Just Thrive Probiotic produces a whole pile of bioavailable antioxidant carotenoids, at least 11 different ones um, that are essential for immune function. They produce it right there in the gut where it's super easy to absorb. So I am a really strong believer in the benefits of Just Thrive probiotic for these four super well-studied bacillus strains, and then complementing that with fermented foods like kombucha, kefir, a wild fermented sauerkraut to get exposure to the variety of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strains.
I, I know, Sarah, your words were super fast there. I just want to remind everyone you can check out all this information in our show notes. And you can also get the link to Just Thrive there. I'll say it here in case you need it, justthrivehealth.com slash thewholeview. And when you use code thewholeview, you get 15% off of your order at checkout. And that can be combined with their um, subscribe and save options, which of course you can stop at any time as well. Um, I know for me, I'm reminded every time we do one of these shows what the magic of probiotics is and how helpful it can be for overall health, as you mentioned, Sarah. So it's a good reminder, even if you aren't worried about candida. Um, I think the last thing that I wanted to mention, though, is specific to Olivia, who comes from Patreon. And if you really want to know what we think about the show, of course, head over to Patreon um, and it gives you exclusive access to ask us questions, which we could answer directly or here on the show. Um, But her specific question, Sari, just want to make sure that we explicitly answer. I know the answer, but I want to make sure we're answering um, about cutting out fruits. What's your answer? No, no, fruit's great. (laughs) Is it compatible? Is Candida compatible with AIP? Yes, yes, totally, 100%. (laughs) Um, And I think the important thing is, Olivia, you're working with a doctor, as Sarah said. We're not medical professionals, so continue to work with that doctor. But um, it sounds like your doctor not telling you to remove fruit. I'm going to give him a thumbs up. I'm going to say he gets my seal of approval. I don't know him. I don't even know. Maybe it's a her. Maybe it's a them. I don't know. But... um, the one thing that we didn't kind of touch on is caffeinated drinks. Is that yeah. something that you saw in the ca- in the scientific literature anywhere? No, it's not even a, a a particularly common part of candida cleanses. Um, caffeine is actually really anti-inflammatory. Um, obviously, in moderation. When we overdo caffeine, we can um, stimulate the stress response, and consuming a lot of caffeine can magnify our physiological responses to a psychological stressor. So for, for example, consuming a lot of coffee and then we get stuck in a traffic jam, we have a higher level of cortisol in response to that traffic jam than if we consumed a more moderate amount of caffeine. The AIP is not a caffeine-free diet. It sort of eliminates coffee initially because some people have an inflammatory response to coffee, whereas other people have an anti-inflammatory response to coffee. And that seems to be related to some kind of genetics and there's definitely a link to autoimmune disease risk genes. So people's autoimmune disease are more likely to have that inflammatory response to coffee. Certainly not everybody. Coffee is one of those things that lots of people reintroduce successfully. I have. Um, but it still like black tea, green tea are still included on the AIP because that caffeine is anti-inflammatory. They're great sources of uh, polyphenols, for example. Um, but there's I, – I can't even – find it's it's not just that i can't find uh any kind of science behind a link between caffeine and candida growth other than potentially a stress response for high caffeine consumption um but other than that i don't even understand what the the mechanism would be so um it could be that uh olivia's doctor maybe thinks that she's consuming too much caffeine and wants her to cut back Um, that's obviously going to be good because moderate caffeine consumption is where we get like 
the best benefits without tipping over into some of the detriments. Um, but cutting out all caffeine doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no, her doctor didn't suggest to remove it. It was one of those things she Googled and heard from some random person online, I think. So <laughs> sounds like we are consistent with what, you know, she's already hearing. Not that we're trying to suppose that we are doctors giving medical advice, but just that we're not seeing a contraindication from what she's hearing from her doctor. So that's two thumbs up. Um, but again, if you want to access to ask us these types of questions and you want to hear what we really thought about the show you can head over to patreon just um a link will be in the show notes but you can also just type into the search bar the whole view patreon and it'll come right up for you it's also a way to support the show because we research prepare the notes all of the work that Sarah go puts into um how many pages of notes was today I think like there was a seven ten? Okay. 10. 10. Yep, yeah, you're right. Um, 10 pages of notes. And then we record and produce. We do all of this ourselves. And so by supporting us via Patreon, you're allowing us to provide this free content to you. And we thank you so much for just being here. And if you don't want to or can't um, join Patreon, just leaving us a review and sharing it with your friends and family who you think might benefit is also a fantastic way to support us. We thank you so much for being here and we'll be back next week. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.